The information shared on the Allo podcast is not intended as medical advice. Your medical care decisions should be made in consultation with your physician who is familiar with your specific case. Welcome to the Allo Podcast by the Allo Hope Foundation. I'm Molly Sherwood. And I'm Bethany Weathersby. I cannot believe we finally made it to after delivery. I know. It feels like this podcast was our baby and now the podcast baby is born. You're right. (laughs) And this (laughs) this episode, baby, took a lot longer to be ready to go than we expected, right? I know. We really had to think about this. And we also had a false start because we started to record it a couple weeks ago and we had these super extensive notes. And we even, like Eric, our producer, was saying that we even looked like when we started recording it that we were already tired of ourselves because we were just (laughs) feeling very daunted with all the stuff we had to talk about. So we needed to restart and try again. Yeah. I mean... It's it's a lot. It's a lot. And it's it's a whole portion of the disease. So that doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway. No, that does. It does. It's a whole additional section right. of disease treatment. Like yeah. this whole season, we've been talking about all the things you do while you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. And we separated it into a bunch of episodes. Right. And now it's the whole chunk of after the baby is born. It really is a bizarre condition. And it almost feels like a totally different disease after the baby's born because now we have all these new doctors, a whole new care team. The monitoring and treatment is a little bit different. And some of the risks are not the same as they are in in utero. And for me, the strangest part is that the mom is no longer the patient. Her role is now shifting to just being the parent only. And so it almost feels like there's this new patient, even though it's the same little patient that has been here all along. But now um, it's just a big shift, I think, even though it is the Mm -hmm. same disease. Yeah, I totally agree. You're right. It's a new patient, basically. So now we're talking about the HDFN baby. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we can give our listeners the information and the resources they need to have the best experience possible after they deliver And once they get home from the hospital, even if it's after discharge Mm -hmm. or after NICU time. So here's the plan we constructed for today. So we're going to talk about what's happening in the baby's body in the case of hemolytic disease after birth and the two main risks of HDFN, which is high bilirubin or hyperbilirubinemia and anemia. And then we'll talk a little bit quickly about the NICU and what to expect after discharge, and then a couple kind of random special tips that we think are still important to be aware of. Okay, that sounds good. And also, I want to give a quick caveat that there's so much information here, and we're trying to convey just the main points that we want listeners to take away. But definitely consider looking at the links in the show notes afterwards to feel fully informed and get all of the detailed information that you need. Yep. Okay, so let's start by looking at what is happening in the baby's body and what are the risks. Okay, yeah, that's a great place to start because there seems to be a misconception sometimes that once the baby is away from the mother's antibodies, they're not in danger anymore. 
And the problem is the baby isn't actually away from the antibodies after birth because, yes, they are away from the source of the antibodies, which is the mother, but the antibodies are still in the baby's blood and can continue to attack the baby's red blood cells for up to 12 weeks after birth is generally what they say and sometimes a little bit beyond. And so we already know what happens if too many red blood cells are destroyed by the mother's antibodies, just like in utero, the baby can become anemic. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the main risks for the baby. And then on top of that, those destroyed red blood cells release something called bilirubin, which can build up to toxic levels in the infant system. And so that's called hyperbilirubinemia. Such a long word. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> It's also one of the biggest risks to babies after birth when it comes to HDFN. And just to go back to what you were saying, Molly, it is so confusing because the whole time while we're pregnant, we're thinking, I want this baby to be safe and be out of me so that they're away from this danger. Yes. At least for me, I was just like, oh, I can't wait till the baby. Oh, I totally be. felt yeah, that way. Because it's yes, like, just get them out. Right. Yeah. And so then we feel this great relief when the baby's out. Like, whew, okay, now they're out of that really dangerous environment. But like you said, the antibodies are still there in the baby's system circulating. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so let's start with what you started to touch on, which is Billy. Well, we call it Billy for mm -hmm. short, but we're talking about Billy Rubin. So mm -hmm. we talked about the two main risks, anemia and hyperbilirubinemia. So, all right, I have a question about this. We hear about mm -hmm. fetal anemia as a risk before birth, like when the baby is still in the mom's tummy. But right. if bilirubin is a byproduct of the destroyed red blood cells, why is it not a problem before birth also like anemia is? That's a really good question. And I asked my doctors the same thing because I was really worried about my babies having high bilirubin in utero. And they were like, no, don't worry. It's all because of the placenta. Um, in utero, the placenta mm -hmm. filters out the bilirubin for the baby. But after birth, the baby's liver has to take over and filter that bilirubin out. And this is a brand new liver. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. a lot of times babies are born with slightly underdeveloped livers, especially if they're born early. And so that's just a lot of work for that liver to do. That sounds weird. I feel like I just said liver like... 12 it's times important. but um, liver is important no i have no it is that's true <laughs> so because of that liver's slightly impaired function i guess yeah and this overload of bilirubin um that's why it can build up to those toxic levels after birth <laughs> okay that's really interesting yeah. it totally makes sense though when you explain it that way all right so mm -hmm. i'm gonna try to talk about why that Billy buildup after birth could be so dangerous. So when bilirubin levels get too high, it can become toxic. It's considered actually a neurotoxin, meaning a brain toxin. And so as it builds up, the baby will start to become jaundiced, which is where you notice yellowing of the skin or the eyes or the fingernails. And untreated jaundice can lead to permanent and fatal effects like hearing loss, bilirubin encephalopathy, cornicterus, and death if it's not treated properly. Those are some incredibly intimidating words. I mean, just like, yes, 
hyperbilirubinemia, encephalopathy, jaundice, chronicterus. I feel kind of overwhelmed just hearing you say them. I know, me too. (laughs) And that's the reason why we have a whole section on our website dedicated just to defining these words. It's our glossary, and we will definitely link to it in the show notes. Yeah, we will link to it. But simply put, high billy can lead to permanent brain damage. And that's basically what all the words mean. Well, that's not very reassuring. No. (laughs) Um, But I do remember feeling like after my babies were born, I had this sense of like, oh, no, there's a new fear unlocked because this was not something I had to worry about during my pregnancy. I didn't have to worry about the bilirubin after I figured out that it wasn't a risk in utero. Um, And now it's kind of this urgent time sensitive Mm -hmm. risk. And so I felt like I had to suddenly be on guard and super attentive um, because I knew if we weren't proactive enough treating and monitoring the bilirubin, my baby could have that lifelong brain damage that you talked about. Yeah. And you are right about that. But What's important to remember is that with prompt treatment, it's completely fine. No long-term effects on the baby. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was curious, what happens if you don't treat hyperbilirubinemia? Mm -hmm. What would the consequences be? And we talked about kernicterus, which is permanent irreversible brain damage. Um, And that's something in the medical literature that we say is a, or should be a, quote, never event. Like if you Google you know, kernicterus never event. You're going to see a bunch of publications on it. It's something that is entirely preventable, should never happen. So say there's no treatment for your baby's hyperbilirubinemia. I found a study Mm -hmm. that showed that in 25% of cases, those babies would go on to develop kernicterus. But thankfully, there's a simple way to monitor and treat it before it gets to dangerous levels at all. And this is what I love about the post-birth piece is that the baby is very accessible and easy to monitor and treat. Right. Right. There's no extra human that you have to go through to get to the baby. <laughs> Correct. Right? Just, there's yes. the baby. Like you can access the baby right there and then treat the baby if needed. I do love that about after a birth. I know. <laughs> That's so cool. I never really thought of it that way as one of the perks. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, let's talk about how you do monitor the baby's billy. So you can monitor it through blood tests, which is first done on the baby's cord blood when Mm -hmm. they are born. So you're actually drawing blood from the umbilical cord. But then after that, you can draw it usually from like a heel prick is where they tend to draw the blood tests. Sometimes, um, and it happens more and more nowadays, and it is recommended and safe by the American Academy of Pediatricians. They do, it's called transcutaneous billy, meaning it's sort of like a little light sensor that you put on the baby's forehead or sometimes the upper chest to see there's billy as measured by the skin. And those there are studies that show that it's not quite as accurate as blood billy, but usually it's within like three units of being accurate. So you and I talked about like, okay, what should we say to people on this podcast about it? Like, should we say it's okay? So officially the AAP does say that it's okay. And I feel like where we stand is if your hospital is doing the skin billy measurements and the baby is approaching phototherapy thresholds, 
it could be worth asking and just talking to your doctor about also getting a blood test at that point and comparing the yeah, two. Yeah, that sounds like a good plan. Did your babies, how were they tested for Billy? Was it by blood test or the skin we actually did both for this reason. Okay. Like I was kind of suspicious. I wasn't really sure how reliable the skin test would be. And so right. we, for Grayson, my youngest, he was monitored for high Billy for like over a month. And several times we went ahead and did skin and blood. And sometimes it was perfectly spot on. Sometimes it was off by a couple. Huh. But in every case, it never made the difference for us between treatment or not. It was close enough. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yeah. One thing that your care team should be referencing okay. to keep on hand to decide if your baby does need treatment for their high billy and treatment in this case would be putting them under lights for phototherapy. That helps the body break down the, they call it unconjugated bilirubin, but anyway, it helps you break it down so the baby can pee or poop out the billy. Or you can do transfusions mm-hmm. for the baby too. In order to decide if you're going to need that, The American Academy of Pediatrics, they have a whole guideline for managing Billy in newborns. And so one thing that you and your care team should be referencing is this chart that they have. And really, even your nurse, I remember even my nurse kind of had it laminated on her clipboard. Like they look at this all the time. Oh, wow. Okay. They have a chart to tell you what levels of bilirubin require treatment. And it's mapped out based on the baby's age in hours. And what's new for the guidelines this year is that there's an entirely separate chart with babies who have a risk factor that could create neurotoxicity, which we have. Our disease is listed on the recommendations as a risk factor. So all of our babies automatically fall into that chart for Mm -hmm. the thresholds for babies with Billy neurotox risk factors. So we're going to link to the chart. They also have a flow chart here for management, like how often to check Billy. Okay, We'll link to that. And then I'll link to just the whole guideline all together so people can read the entire thing. Nice. Okay. That's really good to know. And I just learned that about these new recommendations. Like I know it's 30 like minutes brand ago. spanking new. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Those blood tests, the Billy Rubin tests are so important because it's a time sensitive treatment. And if the bilirubin is high or rising, the sooner it the treatment mm-hmm. is started, the easier it is to control and keep low. And, and that's how we prevent that permanent brain damage for the baby. And that's why if you think back to Monique's story, she was so stressed out mm-hmm. um, with her youngest baby because they would not test the bilirubin levels for, I think it was 24 hours after birth. And so if you're waiting for 24 hours to get that first Billy Rubin level, that's super risky. Yeah. Yeah. And actually this flow chart I just talked about that they released says the complete opposite. Hmm. It says check it immediately. Right. And then every four hours, two times, and then every 12 hours, three times, it's very explicit yeah. about how often it needs to be checked. Okay. I know like with my son Callum, his cord blood showed a very high bilirubin level. And so right away he was put under lights. And then anyway, let's, let's talk about the treatment though. So it, what does treatment look like if the baby's born with high bilirubin or you see that it's trending upwards? Okay. So the treatment for this is phototherapy lights, like we said. Uh So I'm sure most of us have seen a baby laying in a nursery with those like purple blue lights on top of them. Mm -hmm. And that helps them 
break down and eliminate the bilirubin. And they're safe. They're non-invasive. They don't even touch the baby. Mm. They're just lights. I love that. There are Billy blankets that exist that some people get sent home with with their hyperbilirubinemia. AAP does not recommend that for our condition. So got to be under lights okay. in the hospital. Because they're stronger, right, than the Billy blanket. Right. Yeah. They are stronger. Okay. Yes. And then if the phototherapy lights are not keeping the bilirubin low enough, then doctors can give the baby IVIG infusions to help control levels. And most of the time, in, even in severe cases, phototherapy and IVIG is enough mm-hmm. to keep the baby's levels well below the dangerous limit. Mm-hmm. But if it's still rising, then we move on to an exchange transfusion. Okay. And an exchange transfusion is different from the more typical, I guess, top-off transfusion, or it might be called Mm. simple transfusion. So the exchange transfusion actually removes the baby's blood and replaces it with donor blood, which you can see how that would be beneficial if the baby's blood has all of this bilirubin built up in it, right? So if you're taking away Mm -hmm. that, I guess, quote, bad blood and replacing it with donor blood, that's that really helps bring down that bilirubin quickly. And then a top off mm-hmm. or simple transfusion, which is the much more common type of blood transfusion, is just adding donor blood to the baby's body and not removing any of the patient's blood. Okay, that's super helpful because I think we throw around both mm-hmm. sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And true. those treatments are so effective when they're administered at the right time that like we said, bilirubin encephalopathy and coronicterus and death are like Mm. we talked about they are supposed to be never events like it should never happen completely preventable which is great Mm -hmm. okay so we've covered the first of the two main risks for babies with hdfn after birth and now let's look at the other one which is anemia yeah this one does feel a little more familiar just because it's a risk both Mm -hmm. before birth and after birth and it's monitored and treated the same before and after right except that now again there's no human right there's no human to go through to get to the baby right um so it's just much easier to access the baby for monitoring and treatment of anemia. But I do think that the advocacy on the mother's part is still just as hard after birth, honestly, as it is before birth. That's my Mm -hmm. opinion. Okay, so anemia is monitored with blood tests, and the first one should be done on the cord blood, just like the bilirubin. And they look at the baby's hemoglobin or hematocrit to know if the baby is anemic or not. If the baby is anemic, they give a blood transfusion with donor blood that is matched to the mother's antibodies. So Molly, in your case, anti-S, they, if your baby's needed a transfusion, they would make sure to give the baby S negative, antigen negative donor blood. Right. And is it true that a lot of babies are not even anemic at birth? Yes. It seems like it's such a focus that we have and we're like hyper aware of it after birth and then kind of shocked sometimes Mm -hmm. if they're not actually anemic. Yeah. A lot of babies with HDFN are not anemic or not severely anemic or not anemic enough to even need a blood transfusion when they're born. You're right. I do think that during pregnancy, it's such a fear and focus and we're thinking about it a lot because that's the main uh, risk, right? During pregnancy, after birth, it's kind of a surprise when we think that the baby mm-hmm. will definitely be anemic and they're not. Sometimes they are, but a lot of times they are not. And one like picture I have in my mind of these two main risks is mm-hmm. the bilirubin is kind of like a tsunami because it 
comes on relatively fast in those hours and days after birth to be super vigilant and again, time sensitive with everything. But the anemia mm-hmm. is often more like a lava and the the lava from a volcano slowly creeping down the mountainside. I love um, this. It's, well, yeah. you're making it sound kind of beautiful, but it's really <laughs> not, I guess. <laughs> Sorry. Creeping down a mountainside. Oh I'm my imagining. gosh. No, but it's a really good analogy. Yeah. I'm going to, that's going to stick with me. I like that. Yeah. My, my boys, you know, I have four boys, you have three. They're just mm-hmm. obsessed with natural disasters. And oh, like, yes. Totally. Um, like carnage, calamity, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> destruction. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's so funny. No, we have like, we, right, we're really into volcanoes right now. I have a lot right. of volcano books. We do nice. the like vinegar baking soda thing all the time. <laughs> yes. But then my boys fight over who gets to add the vinegar. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I think at least two of our last um, gender reveals were just a volcano reveal <laughs> where the, <laughs> the lava that came out was either pink or blue. That's a great um, idea. Yeah. Because they're so obsessed with, mm-hmm. again, natural disaster. So that's what, probably why this is in my mind. Yeah. Um, but do be aware that a baby can be totally have normal hemoglobin and hematocrit at birth, not anemic at all. And weeks later be anemic and need blood transfusions um so two of my three surviving hdfn babies were not anemic at all when they were born and then they were discharged from the hospital a few days later um, and then they both needed multiple blood transfusions starting at four weeks old so they did Mm -hmm. not become anemic enough for a transfusion until they were four weeks old that is so crazy i think the Mm -hmm. delayed onset anemia concept can be super tricky because Mm -hmm. that's when they risk not being seen and not getting the care that they need if they weren't presenting with anemia at birth and then Mm -hmm. you might mistakenly clear them and not look after them to see if they still need care how does the baby suddenly become anemic like you said at like three four five weeks old right yeah so it is very sneaky um and there are some contributing factors that kind of help cause that delayed onset anemia Babies with HDFN often have suppressed red blood cell production. So basically, their bodies either stop or slow down making new red blood cells. And mm. some antibodies like Kel not only destroy the red blood cells in the baby, but also suppress the baby's ability to make new red blood cells, which I'm like, that is just so mm. insidious. I feel like that's well, like yeah. extra it, evil. Yes, that's a great word for you know? it. Yes. Um, and that's yes. what happened to, I mean, my daughter Lucy. That's one of the reasons she mm-hmm. died is, you know, her red blood cells were destroyed. And then she was, you know, sh- her ability to make new red blood cells was suppressed. Um, and that's mm-hmm. why Kel has to be watched extra closely. And I believe that's part of the reason why there's a lower critical titer. Um, and it's, you know, yeah. or now they say like, zero, yeah, exactly. No it's just, exactly. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. So some babies are born with that suppressed ability to create new red blood cells, especially those who have received IUTs, um, blood transfusions before birth. Because this is so cool to me. Okay, this was so interesting when I learned this during my one of my pregnancies. I guess the second one where mm-hmm. I was actually having multiple IUTs. Um, the baby stops making new blood because the baby's body in utero realizes there's an outside source providing new mm-hmm. blood to me. So I'm not going to waste my energy making new blood if somebody else is making it for me. 
Um, and so they stop. Wow. Yeah, they stop making new red blood cells. And that's why another reason why IUTs are continued until delivery. And that's why these babies are born not really making new blood. And so you can see how this is a problem if they're the the baby has the mother's antibodies still circulating in the system mm-hmm. and then they're not creating new blood mm-hmm. and they're growing you know at, as the weeks go by they're growing they need more blood and so that is what's causing this delayed onset anemia yeah that's a great point and to bring that back to what it means for blood work after birth. Another important test that should be done on the baby's cord blood and then in follow-up blood tests is the reticulocyte count. And the reticulocytes are showing you how many sort of immature red blood cells are being made. So it shows you, is the baby actively making new blood? Right. And, And it's important to look at the retic because you need to know if that baby is making new red blood cells to replace the ones that are being destroyed by the mother's antibodies. I remember for a while, my baby's retic was zero, like absolute zero, which meant like nothing's being produced here by this baby's own body. Yeah. That's why they needed several blood transfusions all the way until I think eight weeks old. You can just see why it's important to monitor closely after the baby is born and after hospital discharge. So what does monitoring look like for these babies after they come home? Yeah. So for the anemia portion, which is what we're talking about Mm -hmm. right now, after the baby is discharged, they should still receive weekly blood tests until their reticulocytes, which we're calling retic, Mm -hmm. and hematocrit or hemoglobin are going up for two weeks in a row. So is that what your baby's care looked like after they were discharged? Yes, we had a great collaboration between a pediatric hematologist and our pediatrician. And I kind of had to facilitate that between the two of them, which is fine. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people have to kind of step up and collaborate for this to run smoothly. But we did make sure that they had weekly blood tests, I think all the way up until about 15 weeks after they came home and watching for that delayed onset anemia. Yeah, we did. I'm trying to think about what we did with Gray. Mm-hmm. I think we did do weekly blood tests to check for anemia for the time that he was being monitored, which for him was about five weeks. And his issue was Billy. He had really yeah. high Billy. So we were checking Billy more often than we were checking hemoglobin and hematocrit and reticulocytes, but we were watching him right. for about that long. And you know what's really interesting? I actually can't believe this, especially with your pregnancy histories of our five HDFN babies, which span from mild to really severe in terms of HDFN, only mm-hmm. one of them actually needed NICU time, right? Right. Yeah, that is true. And amazing because I guess, at least for me, I just expected them all to be in the NICU for an extended amount of time. Do you think it's like a product of the quality care that they received in utero? I have seen that often babies who need intervention before birth seem to need less intervention after birth, actually. Yeah, I guess it makes sense. It's like they're I don't even know they're they're It's like they're born having already started their treatment path if that makes sense, kind of like they've right. been treated. So they're starting right. from that, that jumping off point. I don't know. Yeah, this is 
making me think of my friend Emily. Um, so she has FYA antibodies mm-hmm. and little C antibodies. With both of our youngest, her son is Emmett, and he had no IUTs. He didn't need any help in utero, no intervention. She had a very like low-key pregnancy. I mean, monitoring closely, but no intervention needed. Mm-hmm. And then my youngest son, August, had seven IUTs. Um, you know, I had to do mm-hmm. the plasmapheresis, IVIG, phenobarbital, all of the all of these interventions. And after birth, both of the boys needed the same amount of intervention. So their post-birth severity was about equal. So Emmett needed extensive phototherapy mm-hmm. and NICU time and then three blood transfusions after he was born. And August needed a little bit of phototherapy, no NICU time, and then he needed three blood transfusions. So if you just look at, if you step back and look at the whole HDFN course for both of these boys, it's incredible to see how different their prenatal course was compared to the severity after birth for both of them. That's really interesting. That's super helpful to compare. And just to know that, I guess you just, not to make people super worried or Right. Anxiously hypervigilant, but you don't really mm-hmm. know what the treatment course will look like for your HDFN baby. Right. For after birth. And it's, yeah. I mean, it is, it is sad to see babies get a blood draw, but it is pretty easy to monitor, really, blood tests. You yeah. Know? And I will say, actually, if this is any indication of how much I feel like this care at this stage of life for them is so important, Hayes, mm-hmm. my second son, who ended up being. Coombs negative. We still mm-hmm. tested him a couple times through blood draws and one of his heel pricks got infected. I talked about it very briefly in my mm. story episode and he was admitted for like four or five days for IV antibiotics. Wow. And even going through that, I still don't regret what we did to just make sure that he mm-hmm. was safe, you know? Yes. Yeah. Because like we've said, the consequences can be so severe yeah. if they do not receive the right treatment and timely treatment in this this small window of time in their lives. It's so mm-hmm. important to get yeah. the right treatment. So let's quickly look at why an HDFN baby might need NICU time. And of course, NICU is neonatal. Oh my gosh. I can't. <laughs> Yeah, you're right. We should explain. We should say right. it, though. Why yeah. don't you say it ne- since my it? No. brain is ne- not? <laughs> now I'm nervous. I'm probably not going to get it right. Okay. Neonatal intensive care unit, right? There you go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That was smooth. Oh, yeah. Um. All right. So why would an HDFN baby need some support in the NICU? Um, a few reasons. Often our babies are born premature. And we talked about that, I think, in detail with the delivery episode, so we won't go into those details. But mm-hmm. our babies are rarely, rarely born at 40 weeks plus, right? I mean... Yeah. Nor should they be, actually. Right. They really should not be. <laughs> yeah. And so sometimes they just need a little extra support if they're born early um, in the NICU. And then also, like we talked about, high bilirubin usually has to be treated mm-hmm. in the NICU. Sometimes it can be treated at bedside in the mother's room with her. Like my son, August, it was very mild, but they're like, let's just be proactive. So they just brought a billy bed in there next to me. It was so wonderful. And he was um, under lights there mm-hmm. and I could just breastfeed him and, you know, put him back under. That must have been so nice to be it was physically so, in the same room with oh him. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It was so 
vital to my emotional well-being. Um, <laughs> it was just so yeah. wonderful. Um, but my son Callum, it was much more severe and he was born earlier. So he was in the NICU and receiving his care there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they could be in the NICU for anemia too. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, or sometimes just for extra monitoring, kind of just to be cautious, especially if the baby was born in an emergency situation or right. if we have reason to think the baby is going to be severely affected. And I think we could really dive into the world of the NICU and spend the rest of this podcast discussing it because there's so much that is involved in the NICU journey. So maybe we should just dedicate a whole episode to this or like someone's story with the NICU Mm. in a season two. Right. Are we, have we decided that we're doing a season two? I don't know. Do you think people like us enough? We'll just have to see. I hope so, because we still have a lot to say. That's true. We have a lot to say. Yeah, and we got to do some more patient (laughs) stories. Like, we keep talking to patients, but I would just love to give them a voice and amplify them. So hopefully we can do more of that. I would love to get some international patient stories, too. Yep. Would love to do that. excited about that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's just go to after hospital discharge, whether it's discharge from the NICU or just Mm -hmm. discharge after birth. So I know this is a super important time to stay vigilant with monitoring, and it just seems way too easy for babies to fall through the cracks because they're having this big transfer of care. They're not, they have no relationship anymore, usually with the MFM who maybe managed them in utero, you know? Right. And there is this misconception that, oh, they're discharged from the hospital, their blood work looks great, Mm -hmm. and so they're done with HDFN. It does seem easier to fall through the cracks after hospital discharge, or if you look at the other extreme, like early anemia, you know, mm-hmm. in that second trimester, I feel like the extremes on both ends, um, it's easier to fall through the cracks because maybe we just aren't as vigilant or aren't on guard at those times. And so we just want to make sure that everyone stays on guard after hospital yeah. discharge and remembers that this window of time after the baby's born and comes home from the hospital is so important. Yes. And there's an end in sight because this is a temporary disease. Yes. Blood tests are still important Thank when it goodness. comes to monitoring your baby for HDFN after discharge. And there's no reliable way to, quote, monitor by outward signs and symptoms alone, which I think many of us have heard just mm-hmm. sort of through not old wives tells but you know we hear about skin coloring baby's mood feeding and sleeping Mm -hmm. patterns and that is an important clue to see if there's something going on with your baby but it's certainly not you should not rely exclusively on those outward signs to trust what's going on with your baby on the inside and Mm -hmm. some babies with hdfn have been anemic kind of on and off for months already so their bodies have kind of adapted to it they might not be showing outward signs of alarm, even when their hemoglobin or hematocrit Mm -hmm. is dropping. So of course you can look for some things in your baby at home. And that would be, again, not to say it's the only way to monitor, but of course you can do this yourself at home by looking for lethargy, like just being super kind of sedated in the way the baby is acting, poor feeding, irritability, difficulty breathing, pale skin or pale nail beds that could indicate anemia. And then on the flip side, As opposed to pale skin and pale nail beds, if you see yellow skin and yellowing of the whites of the eyes, that often signifies jaundice. So if you're ever worried about any of those things, even if your baby wasn't going to see the doctor today, go ahead and take that baby in for blood work. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, good reminder. Mm-hmm. It also works the other way around where um, blood tests can be reassuring, even if your baby has extremely yellow yeah. skin. Even when the baby's bilirubin stabilizes, it takes a while for their skin to go back to its normal color. So I remember Callum... He had he, he was done with the bilirubin. Yes. And he was everything was fine. And he was so orange. Even the whites of his eyes were still orange. And just having those blood tests yes. was so reassuring for me because I'm like, okay, this is just I know that it takes a while for this to regulate and go back to normal. I don't need to worry, but he does look alarmingly orange. <laughs> yes. Gray was the same way. Yeah. He was like glowing oh my God. for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. That's cute. Adorable glowing baby. A glowing um, baby. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So let's. All right. Where are all we? All right. So after discharge, the baby needs weekly blood tests mm-hmm. to monitor. It does, like we said earlier, it takes this collaboration between the parents, pediatrician, and usually pediatric hematologist. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, be ready to facilitate that. Be ready to. Ask your doctor for those weekly blood tests Mm -hmm. because most of the time they will not offer them unless you ask. Yeah. And if your baby's billy is still creeping up, even after you've been discharged, you might be getting your your baby's billy checked every day or every two days. Like I remember bringing Gray in on the weekends, like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, checking billy every day. Right. And again, sometimes the parents have to initiate that. So if, if you... See, that's why it's good to get these numbers. Ask, even write them down. Ask what the bilirubin level is. Because if you see that it's increasing, you need to make sure that they're checking it again the next day. Mm-hmm. And then again the next day until it stabilizes. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. So remember earlier we talked about reticulocytes. And so I think we mentioned that in terms of the blood draws for anemia, the retic counts and the hematocrit levels should be checked until the reticulocyte count is going up for at least two consecutive weeks in hematocrit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's actually really good. So we pulled that from a really thorough management publication that came out of our friends in Leiden um, and was actually overseen by Dr. Lo Priori, who we haven't talked about yet, but he is a neonatologist out in the Netherlands who specializes in this disease. And he's also a member of the Allo Hope Foundation's Medical Advisory Board. So shout out to him. Thank you for this awesome guideline document. So we'll put that in there. And if you want to hear more about the actual transfusion thresholds and phototherapy thresholds that they use in their practice, go find that link. And that would be great. Yeah. Okay. So before we move on from post-birth, I just want to give a little bit of patient experience with blood transfusions after discharge. So again, these are so much easier to do outside of the womb versus in Mm -hmm. utero. Usually you are at an outpatient clinic at a children's hospital where there is a pediatric hematologist who orders the transfusion. Um, We always went just early in the morning and then would be back home usually by dinner time. So there was no like hospital, we weren't being admitted to the hospital technically and staying overnight or anything like that. So that was nice. I learned to pack a ton of snacks, drinks, entertainment. Nice. I brought my heating pad to relax because once the baby gets that IV in, I mean, you're just there for hours just sitting there. Mm -hmm. Also, something I learned was that the best place 
for us to put that IV in is the scalp. It doesn't seem like it, but it really was much easier. The baby's has large veins on the scalp and they're very visible unless your baby is born with a ton of hair, which sometimes they are, but usually babies are pretty bald and you can see those veins and they usually get in on, on the first try. Um, and again, we're talking about a tiny baby, mm-hmm. probably born early, just mm-hmm. a few weeks old. And so it's very hard to get those IVs in. And that's something that a lot of parents have to endure. And it's so stressful to see them poke the baby again and again, and the baby screaming. And it's just really, it feels really traumatic. And so mm-hmm. I learned to just say, can you please do a scalp IV? Yeah. And then of course, if they don't get it on the first try, I always said, can you please go get the IV team? Because there is a team of people who specializes in placing these IVs in small veins. Mm. Okay. If you're at a pediatric hospital, then ask for that. And it's it, it saves the baby a lot of suffering. Well, that's a great tip. And so then they usually, once the IV is in, they give the baby pre-meds um, to help avoid a reaction. So for us, they were the babies were given Benadryl and Tylenol, and then that Benadryl really kicks in, and the baby just sleeps nice. um, for hours. It was great. It was always a really sweet time for me and the baby. It always felt like a bonding moment because there's no other kids needing me. Um, yeah. I would just breastfeed my baby and then the baby, you know, would just lay on my chest sleeping. All of this happens during the mm-hmm. blood transfusion. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was really sweet. I always felt once that IV it was in, I felt pretty relaxed during those blood transfusions. That would be really nice. I definitely I see where you're coming from with that as a you know, yeah. I feel like being moms with multiple kids, we mm-hmm. realize that even those moments, even if it's sort of an unfortunate circumstance, yeah. but when you're in silence with one of your children. Mm-hmm. It's really, really wonderful. Yeah, it is. Okay, so the special golden question everyone wants to know, how do you know when your baby is done with HDFN forever? And different centers have different literal thresholds, mm-hmm. but basically you're looking for the bilirubin to be consistently trending downward, mm-hmm. the hemoglobin or hematocrit and the reticulocytes consistently increasing. And the important thing, in my opinion, is having multiple data points because you're looking at the mm-hmm. direction, like the trajectory of everything. That's why returning to the baby's pediatrician or the pediatric hematologist is critical until mm-hmm. everyone feels comfortable that the baby has recovered from HDFN. Absolutely. And that is the best feeling ever to be discharged yes. and like <laughs> done. No more blood tests. Ugh. Mm-hmm. And then you just have a lifetime with this baby, you know? Yep. So sweet. Um, Okay, let's move on to some things to be aware of. And like we said earlier, this is kind of a bizarre disease after birth in some ways. And so here are some things that I found to be very unexpected um, and just things to be aware of. Okay, so let's Mm -hmm. start with iron. And this is probably the most misunderstood part of this disease after birth. And we see parents needing to advocate for this the most, I think, of any other intervention or like monitoring anything. This is the thing they have to Mm -hmm. advocate for. So the majority of the time a healthcare provider sees anemia, it is iron deficiency anemia. So that automatically is resolved by 
giving iron supplements or sometimes an iron inf infusion. Yeah, I was talking to my friend, Marissa, who listens to this podcast. She's a NICU nurse. Shout out to Marissa. <laughs> and she has promised that she is going to implement these next time she has an HDFN baby. But anyway, nice. she says that just by default in their center, they kind of always just give them iron. And it's no one's right. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's just right. so prevalent that mm -hmm. it's sort of a go-to is to give iron. Right. And most of the time, it's not like if the baby isn't super low, it's not harmful to give iron anyway. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Most of the time, I think. So that's why it's just kind of a go-to remedy. But babies with HDFN have a completely different kind of anemia. They have hemolytic anemia, which is the red blood cells are being destroyed by the mother's antibodies. It has nothing to do with iron. Mm -hmm. So the, these babies with HDFN are experiencing a continued hemolytic anemia, it is not iron deficiency anemia. And in fact, our babies are at high risk for iron overload, even if they are anemic at the time. And one study, again, out of Leiden, found that iron overload occurred in 70% of neonates with alloimmune HDFN at birth, and none of the babies in the study were iron deficient. Wow. Um, yeah. So... If you think that about that, that's the nail in the coffin there. Right. <laughs> like, if, you, okay. if you know we're starting iron. with iron overload, then mm -hmm. we don't need to be adding more iron to that. Some babies have already had multiple iron rich blood transfusions before birth. Mm -hmm. And many babies will need, again, iron rich blood transfusions in those weeks following birth. So that's why they do not need to have iron supplements. Another reason is that the iron released from red blood cells in hemolytic anemia is actually reused. And so iron stores are not reduced. What? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I yeah. did not know that. I know. That is so cool. Um, and I think that's why even the babies that have not had IUTs can sometimes have iron overload at birth. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. That yeah. totally makes sense now. Parents listening. Just say to your care team, please do not give my baby iron unless you have tested the baby's ferritin first. And if the ferritin is low, you know, that's fine to give iron mm -hmm. supplements. But I'm telling you, it's probably not going to be low. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it's not. Yeah. Okay. I have a thing I want to talk about next that is kind of an aside, but we get it a lot. Uh, can I breastfeed? Is it okay to breastfeed my baby? Um the short answer is yes. And actually, like we said, the baby needs to metabolize and break down and excrete, like pee or poop out the bilirubin. And so keeping them super hydrated, however you choose to feed them, is really helpful in and of itself, whether it's breast milk or formula. Actually, the AAP, the American Academy of Pediatrics that I was talking about in their guidelines for hyperbilirubinemia, they point to research that shows that breastfeeding less than eight times a day is associated with higher bilirubin levels. So the flip side of that is if you're planning to breastfeed, breastfeed them as much as you can produce or tolerate and as much as you can when you're with that baby. I always had to supplement with formula those first few days because it took at least three to four days for my milk to come in. And so I knew that that was super important with the bilirubin. So we always supplemented with formula. And then we went on to breastfeed 
for a year after that. So it did not affect, you know, the breastfeeding journey. But that is really important to keep that baby hydrated and Mm -hmm. pooping it out. Yep. Okay, so now let's talk about some of the weird things that we might come across when dealing with babies that had IUTs. Okay, so the baby has had IUTs, that's Mm -hmm. intrauterine blood transfusions before birth, and now they're born. Um, Here's some of the things you might see. Um, Most of those babies, if they've had multiple IUTs, are born 100% donor blood. So they are not born with their own blood type. Actually, all three of my babies were born uh, with an O negative blood type. And now none of them have an O negative blood type. I think they're all like a either a negative or a positive wild. Yeah. So they were born with someone else's blood, fully donor blood. And because of that, remember Mm -hmm. that the donor blood they've been given is antigen negative. So it cannot be destroyed by the baby by the mother's antibodies. Okay. That's why these babies who are 100% donor blood have a negative Coombs test when they're born because it shows that those red blood cells are not being attacked by the mother's antibodies. But even with that negative Coombs test, they're still obviously severely affected by HDFN. Yes. And we didn't talk about the Coombs test in this podcast because we talked about it at delivery because it's usually done at delivery, not like on an ongoing basis. But that is true Sometimes, in some cases, even when the baby hasn't had an IUT, it depends on the specific antibody. And, you know, right. my son Gray was Coombs negative, but he actually mm-hmm. had a, you can also calculate like a hemolytic response by the rate of rise of the bilirubin right after they're born. That's in the AAP mm-hmm. guidelines. He very clearly met the criteria for HDFN based on how quickly yep. his bilirubin was spiking. Right. So again, be vigilant with that follow-up blood work. Okay. And then another thing, because that newborn screen, so all babies are given this newborn Mm -hmm. screen. It's a blood test to check for um, a list of, I think it's usually inherited and main like serious disorders that would need to be kind of caught right away. And so that newborn screen, if done on babies who've had multiple IUTs, sometimes comes back with false results. Makes sense, actually. You just wouldn't necessarily think of it, but you're right. right. It totally makes sense. Yeah. I remember being terrified when I got the call after I was home with my baby Nora and they were saying she had this very serious positive result on her newborn screen. Um, Mm. And they said, it looks like she might have um, carnitine deficiency disorder, which is an inherited metabolic disorder. Um, and I was terrified. I remember wow. I was in Target and I like sat down on the floor because I felt oh. kind of faint because I was like, oh my gosh, I got her here alive just wow. for this to now like come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And then we realized, oh wait, that wasn't even her blood. And so after she was totally done with HDFN and she was making her own blood, we tested her again and everything was negative. She was clear. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so just a heads up that... Babies with multiple IUTs need to have that newborn screen done again later, a few weeks after their last blood transfusion. So just to make sure that you're testing that baby's blood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the baby is born. This is what's so crazy about this disease. Well, a lot of stuff is crazy about it, but one (laughs) crazy thing. (laughs) That was this is the crazy. No, no, we just keep listing more and more crazy things. Here's all the crazy things. (laughs) 
this baby is born already with their own medical history, right. which the mother is responsible for relaying because fetal medical records are not really a thing. So right. record keeping is critical because all the stuff that's happened to the baby mm-hmm. so far is hopefully written in the mom's medical record, mm-hmm. not in the baby's. So a pediatrician who will put a a pediatrician who will put time aside to learn about the baby's medical history is important. Mm. And so coming back to like a kind of holistic, big picture perspective of what's going on in an HDFN baby, that can help you and your care team continue to be thoughtful about how to watch your baby. It's really hard to memorize exactly when to check Billy, Mm -hmm. exactly when the threshold is met. But if you and your team are aware of the process of what's going on, hopefully together you can be thoughtful about what to do to measure how your baby is doing. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that holistic view of everything Mm -hmm. that's happening is so important um, when it comes to care post-birth. And by the way, our newborn booklets um, for patients, well, also providers if they're interested, um, are really great for this phase of HDFN. And we will, of course, include a link in our show notes for you can get a pdf of those booklets or a request form and we will send them to you free of charge Um, and some women actually order multiple booklets so that they can have them with them um, when they give birth have them in the hospital and then they give copies to their nurses and doctors and um, yeah just a reminder to stay on guard and continue that advocating after your baby's born, after your baby's home from the hospital, mm-hmm. all the way until baby is totally cleared of HDFN. Yes. Could not agree more. Isn't it so great that the lab tests exist to monitor what is going on? I cannot imagine before we had right. that. You're right. And actually, we are going to talk about that in our next episode. Yes. That episode is, is so cool. It's the episode... <laughs> And I know it's cool because we already <laughs> recorded it. Am I allowed to say that? Well, we just jumped the gun on that one because it was cool. But that was our history, like past, present, mm-hmm. future of HDFN. My, I can't decide what my favorite episode this season is, but that one's up there. It's very good. I mean, I think it might be my favorite as well. We talked about a lot of stuff. What would we say about how to embark on this newborn period with right. HDFN? Okay. I do just remember that you're going to see different specialists, different providers, um, kind of, you're going to be passed from this provider to the next provider. Your baby will see different um, specialists. And the common denominator with all of them is you and the baby. So obviously your baby can't speak for himself. So, you know, just Mm -hmm. remember that you have to ensure that continuity of care that is flowing from provider to provider. And often that means we have to speak up and, and kind of initiate those tests and even treatment sometimes. Remember, time mm-hmm. sensitive. And so don't be afraid to speak up. Yeah. And you, well, not just you, like I know we're saying you as in the allo mom, but right. we're not only talking about the allo mom, we're talking mm-hmm. about people around her who are going to help support her, who are going to yes. help advocate for the baby. We're talking about the mom's care team. So you, like royal you, is that a word? I've heard people say royal we, but anyway, royal you mm. should right, be able, I made, yeah, now it's a word. I'm not sure it is, but <laughs> from right now it is. Royal you should be able to communicate that the baby has a specific type of anemia called hemolytic mm-hmm. anemia. It requires special prolonged monitoring and your baby is still at risk for HDFN um, for up to 12 weeks after birth and sometimes more. 
but usually within 12 weeks, right? <laughs> right. I mean, well, mine, yeah, mine were discharged at 15 weeks from the right. hematologist. So, mm-hmm. um, and I did have to just remind my doctors, you know, several weeks after birth, remember that my antibodies are still in my baby system circulating and destroying any blood that, you know, they're trying mm-hmm. to make. Yeah. Um, so just, just remember that. <laughs> yeah. And you should be aware that the two biggest risks are hyperbilirubinemia, which can cause cornicterus if it's untreated or if it's treated mm-hmm. too late, and anemia, both of which are treated by phototherapy and transfusions and sometimes other supplemental treatments like IVIG. It is so much to remember. Yeah. Um, and we, there again, we didn't share everything. There's a lot more to know. But thankfully, we have links and resources available in our show notes. Mm-hmm. Remember to check those out. And of course, we are always here to answer your questions, too. Yes. OK, I think that's I it. Remember. I am yeah. tired of talking now. I'm my yeah, yes. Yeah. This was a lot. You're having that crash. <laughs> Remember, you were sweaty and energized, I know, I had, and now it's all gone. I know. I had that really caffeinated coffee, and I was like <laughs> oh, no. really vibe. I'm just like really buzzing, and now I am like, <laughs> okay, I'm tired. <laughs> If you, your partner, or someone close to you has antibodies in their pregnancy, we are here for you. We have a great resource library on our website at allohopefoundation.org. That's spelled allo, A-L-L-O, hopefoundation.org. Thanks for listening. The Allo Podcast is a production of the Allo Hope Foundation. It was researched and written by Bethany Weathersby and me, Molly Sherwood. It is produced and edited by CJ Hausch and Eric Hurst of Media Club. The Allo Podcast is sponsored by Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson. Johnson.